welcome to the Mission Control Podcast. I'm Liana Downey and I'm here today with David Raper, Lead Asia-Pacific Corporate Citizenship at IBM. Welcome, David. Hi, Liana. How are you? It's, it's great to be here. I'm good, thanks, David. So, David, apart from our accents, you and I share something, and that's the experience of having worked across the corporate, the government, and the social sectors, and in both Australia and New York. Mm-hmm. You've had some really interesting roles. Can you tell us a little bit about your career journey to date? Yeah, of course. And I've been, you know, very lucky through my career to have a great variety, both in sectors and also the projects that I've done in the sectors, and also to be able to work with you on some projects, as well as be part of a community with you, which I really appreciate. So maybe just to set out a little, almost a chronology, I actually studied law at university and for all of my teenage years had dreamed of being a lawyer. And the reason for that was that my dad ran a trade union. So the idea of sort of like social good and social justice was always very big in our house. But also the idea of like, you know, being financially okay, you know, something that mattered to me as well. And as I was looking around at what I could do, I saw these lawyers that would work for my dad's union and were doing okay. And I thought, oh, well, here's a spot where I could maybe have both of those two things. And so my career started in the very late 90s doing commercial litigation. And then I worked for a judge for a year as a judge's associate. And after sort of a year and a half of, of watching the litigation process, and which can be pretty brutal, I really thought I don't want to spend my life looking backwards and trying to argue over yesterday's problem. I wanted to try to help with either today's problem or maybe even tomorrow's problem. And so I moved into uh, government beginning at the cabinet office in New South Wales. And law training and a, a, a liberal arts degree was great for that. And really, uh, that was very much helping the government of the day think through policy ideas in social policy. So a lot of child protection, child care, education, health care. And I did that for about three years from, you know, drafting letters and speeches to, you know, working on really substantial policy issues around, you know, privacy and child protection. I then left for about a bit over a year and worked with the Boston Consulting Group, where I really, you know, learned a lot of business strategy, how business thinks, which is quite different from government, and got to see a, a really different world, but felt that I think my calling was more, you know, in the social sector. So then left into an operational role with the Department of Aging, Disability and Home Care. Yeah, this is probably the job I was most proud of, you know, so far in my career. It was, you know, working on a program for young adults with a pretty significant, generally intellectual disabilities. Uh, you know, when they've, you know, left school, it was a community integration, community participation program. And the program was a mess. There were protests in the street. The treasury was cutting the budget. The parents were unhappy. The government was unhappy. And, you know, my job with a small team was to redesign the program and to turn it from something that wasn't a very effective other than, you know, a a time-based program into something that was based around skills and skill development, you know, things like how to interact in the community, how to use transport, those sorts of things, life skills, in a way that Treasury would be happy with a financially rigorous model that actually had some outcomes, and then actually selecting providers who would deliver the services promised and do it in a high-quality way. And, you know, we did that for a year. And then at the end of the year, that was one of the programs that the government talked about. It was one of their staff programs. In the first evaluation, 90% of parents were happy with the new program. So that was, that was a lot of hard work, but it was probably the proudest moment of my career so far, back in government. Yeah. Out of there, I moved to the Premier's Delivery Unit in New South Wales. And our job really was to help the government focus on the most important issues facing the community and service delivery. So we spent a lot of time 
dealing with public transport, timeliness, safety, cleanliness, with policing and with hospitals and healthcare and education. And that was really a really an attempt by the government at the time to bring more of a short, sharp consulting model to problem solving, very data-driven, but also very quick, and partnering with the implementing agencies to help them get to the results that the government needed. So we worked with the rail department to get more trains on time, as simple as that, although a lot obviously goes into that. And that was the, the end of the moment of my government career. And I left Australia then to do a Master of Public Administration at the Kennedy School, which, you know, is a great thing to do after eight, nine, ten years of working, just to take some time for reflecting. And off the back of that, moved to New York City, where I've been based for the last six years, and ran the social enterprises for a great organization called Housing Works here in New York City, whose mission is to end AIDS and homelessness. And its model was running social enterprises like thrift shops, a bookshop, a catering company, and using the surplus profits of that to fund on the charity side, service, innovation and advocacy in healthcare and HIV prevention and social justice. And I ran those businesses for about five years. And then six months ago, left there to join IBM, where I currently am, where I lead our corporate citizenship, or some companies might know that it'll call that corporate social responsibility across the Asia Pacific region, trying to bring the capabilities IBM has and work with partners and, and apply those in the best way we can to address the so, you know, social problems or problems that social organizations are facing to be more effective and, and make their communities better. So that's sort of my career in a nutshell as a, as a starting point. You know, and it's, it's fascinating because you've covered those three sectors and not, not many people have the opportunity to do that across the course of their career. So I'm interested, given those experiences, what are your big observations after having worked across those three sectors about, you know, what's different and what's the same? Yeah. So maybe to start with the, with the same, I think across all of them, there are a lot of, and I'll, I'll probably talk most about people, but I think there are a lot of very smart, very good people that bring different experiences and different approaches. But, you know, across all of them, overwhelming majority of people are really trying to do a great job for, you know, their organization, for their community, for themselves and their family. And I think, you know, sometimes in a pretty divided world, we can forget that at our core, a lot of our motivations are very much about, you know, doing something good, doing something that has purpose and has meaning. And I've seen that in all of the roles that I've had. And I think, you know, thinking about careers, you know, to get the farthest and to be successful, for both for yourself and for outcomes, it's very much like how can you draw on that difference and that, and that diversity. But there are then across the, and, and then the operational challenges, the budgetary challenges, et cetera, are not that different, I think, across the sector. Everybody looks at the other and goes, oh, they've got unlimited resources, the grass is greener. In fact, everybody's got to work within a budget, whether it's the budget of the capital markets or the budget of the treasury. You know, everybody has constraints that, that we need to work within. I think the differences are the sources of motivation and the sources of incentive that sort of guide your behavior within those constraints and within those possibilities. And I think from what I've seen, and this is a generalization, but 80% of the time government, for example, works to avoid risk, you know, and avoid political risk. I have been lucky enough to live in democracies and governments are rightly at the call of the people. And at this stage in our history, most times as a government, you're more likely to be successful if people aren't complaining. And you're better to do no harm than be really ambitious and shoot for the moon at this point in our history. And so that drives a lot of government 
it can drive safe behavior and it can drive a lot of community and employee frustration. And secondly, of all of them, government has very, very complex goals at scale. You have a community that is not agreed about what its shape should be, what government's shape should be within that. And then you have an organization that tries to exist and balance and marry up and find synergies between different goals. So that's my you know, 80% government. And then, of course, there are 20% of times where that's not true, where change happens fast, you have you know, ambition and vision and, and, and all of those things. And then my experience of the private sector is that, you know, conversely, it's a constantly like sell, sell, sell. And so it's looking more at the, how can you fill up the glass? How can you fill up the glass? How can you fill up the glass? And that drives a lot of behavior as well behind for them, at least in express terms, a pretty simple goal. You know, it adds up to a number, there's a plus and a minus, and you've got to make the difference between those two, the biggest. And generally, the way to do that is to go after revenue and, and to grow. And so, you know, almost the polar opposite of government in terms of the incentives there. And then on the, on the not-for-profit environment, I think there's a great deal of diversity there because they're often small organizations, often newer organizations. They can be very dependent on the views and motivations of their CEO or their, you know, senior leadership or their, their core constituency. You know, that can be visionary, that can be risk averse, that can be a lot of things, but they may be more person dependent in the main. I think they can be very visionary. Their challenge often is, you know, management and operations, which can not all the time, but can often be kind of shot and there can often be great improvement in not-for-profits, less around the strategy and more around, well, how could we execute those things better? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think that's, I think those are all really astute observations. And I would say that it was interesting for me when you're talking about the corporate sector and the kind of sell, 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 that for many of the organizations who are non-profits as opposed to social enterprises, and I suspect also with social enterprises, I'd say the same is almost true for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember going to a session where somebody who had founded a very successful nonprofit and was giving advice to people who were thinking about setting up nonprofit. He was saying, if you're thinking about going and doing work in that sector or setting up an organization because you don't like money and you're not interested in money, you are going to do the wrong place. <laughs> because yep. there is that tension. And I think, you know, I've sat in meetings where probably some of the same government conversations you were in where Treasury will say, well, you know, we really need to do more work in that space. Can't we kind of get the nonprofit se- sector, to, you know, to step up? Yeah. And then, you know, and, and the nonprofit sector saying, well, what we really need to do is we really need to get government funding that work. Yeah. And then, you know, the same with corporates. We really need more kind of corporate philanthropy. And if they could just plug that gap, you know, we'd be fine. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, everybody is operating around constraints. Um, yeah. And is their daily challenge is kind of how to optimise that. Yeah. It's getting a little sort of esoteric, but I think it's an interesting question because you were talking about the profit motive, obviously, for businesses. There is that challenge around, it's very clear what you're trying to do. You're maximizing shareholder value. And in some sense, that makes life a lot simpler because you can make trade-offs more easily. And it's something I'm very passionate about helping social sector organizations do is sort of almost have that equivalent goal so that they know how they can prioritize their actions. But one of the things that has, as I've stepped out and kind of worked across all of those sectors too, has really made me reflect on is how important thoughtful rather than bureaucratic but thoughtful government regulation becomes because if you're operating a business in an environment where those regulations on the big important things like are the foods and flavourings and additives that we're producing putting consumers at risk, 
Yep. And, you know, we tend to operate under the world, in this world as consumers, under the assumption that government has our backs and they're kind of, you know, that all the necessary regulations are in place. And I think increasingly we see that that's not necessarily the case and that we have this sort of interesting conversation in the States at the moment around the need for less regulation, which is yep. a small business owner. And I'm sure, you know, from your perspective, you might agree is important. But also, you know, corporations with that profit motive, there's always a risk that without the kind of constraints, sensible constraints that protect citizens, the profit motive leads you into some interesting places. So I'd be interested to kind of hear your thoughts on the role of regulation, the importance of regulation and what that means for organisations. Yeah, I think particularly now that's a difficult conversation to have in the abstract. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, and we have it in the abstract. And so we end up with, you know, a pro-regulation camp and a anti-regulation camp. Yeah. And, you know, everybody can talk about, you know, food safety on this yeah. side. Yeah. And then we talk how, you know, in some states in the United States, it takes six months to become a hairdresser in the state next right. door week. And why is that? And it yeah. doesn't seem to make any, any sense. I think across those three sectors I've seen in a relatively short career is, is the, the need for and, in fact, more cross-pollination, mm -hmm. both of ideas yep. in terms of how you do things and also what you should do. And I, I can't say I'm hopeful, but I would... I will say I'm hopeful that starts to allow some more sensible conversations, you know, around in this context for this problem, what is the right, what is the right regulation? I don't know that we're going to get far as a community with these very abstract, you know, role of government, role of private sector conversations, because I think, and I think you see it in this political campaign on a, this political environment that we're in in the United States at the moment. I mean, if you, if you go and survey the American people, you get, you know, 70, 75, 80% of support for a lot of different things. But getting that through a political process, which involves the, you know, big government, big business, not-for-profits, can be a, a very difficult thing. And so, you know, political campaigns then set up these avatars for, you know, different views. And we kind of lose sight of, well, if we could just focus on this piece, mm -hmm. Not that it's easy and not that there's no political disagreement, but actually we have 80% agreement around that. That I think is why that, that question of regulation is best answered in when we're talking about food safety, the answer is going to be different than when we're talking about something that can do less harm to many, many people. I think it's a, it's a really, really good point. And I think it comes true in almost everything that we do, that the more specific we can be about what we're talking about, the, the better everything is. You know, we can have more meaningful conversations when we have really practical, tangible examples. And yeah. I liked, you know, when you were talking about the similarities in the sector, I think one of the things that you see for people who've not had the opportunity to work across sectors is this demonization. All government employees are X or all non-profit employees of Y and the same in business. And in yep. fact, as you said, you know, it's people kind of doing the best they can. And when you have the experience of working across sectors, you realise that inherently for most people there's, there's kind of a starting place of good intentions and yep. a desire to contribute yep. to society. So I think that that's right. So let's talk a little bit more about technology in your current role. I know you, like a lot of people and your firm obviously, are thinking a lot about big data. So from that vantage point, tell the listeners, those social sector leaders, you know, what are some of the things that we should know, the, the good and the bad about big data and what it means? Okay. I think before we get to the good and, and the bad, I think, you know, one point we as a society needs to sort of understand is it's probably only going to get more, whatever we do with it. Yeah, bigger data. <laughs> 
I mean, at work at the moment, people talk about terabytes, and I don't even quite know what they are yet, but they're very, very big. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yes, but just to, you know, to, to get specific, you know, some of the sort of trends that are happening in the world in this, you know, with technology and data is everything's being digitized. So, you know, every interaction that you have, the phones that we carry around, the way business is transacted is moving from, you know, analog, in concrete terms, phones to digital phones, you know, paper records to electronic records. So everything is becoming more accessible data. And on top of that, we're producing a lot more data every day. So my phone probably pumps out more data about me than my great grandfather would have had collected about him and stored somewhere in his whole life. My phone probably pumps out more of that in a day. So the amount of data is going to get bigger. And I think the other sort of interesting point that we're moving into is most of the data that we have in the world is unstructured. So this video call we're having at the moment is going to be recorded, but it's in the past been very, very hard to analyze that other than somebody sitting down and watching a thousand of these videos and, and, and taking notes. Where we are now is that the analytic tools we have that you know, companies are developing are able to suck in and create meaning out of unstructured data. Our tweets, mm-hmm. our videos, those, you know, when you, you call the customer center, it says this call is being recorded for customer service purposes. Yeah. Now we know nothing happens to that call, <laughs> that recording, but, but it can happen now and that's new. So the amount of data we have is going to, is exploding. And I think, the, and the amount of access to that data that we have is also exploding. So one way or another, we as society need to come to terms with that and work out how we're going to deal with it. Because I, I don't think that's changeable. I think that there's so many things driving that, that, that it will just happen. And so then to, to sort of get to the good and the bad, I think on the good, there's, you know, extraordinary, you know, possibility in that. And, and, and we actually appreciate when we see it. We like it when all of the applications on our phone work smoothly and we don't have to be re the same data all the time and, and at a very banal level. You know, we appreciate it when we don't notice it. At a bigger level, you know, I've started to see, you know, more in in my current role where we have the capabilities to use a lot of that data, you know, some of the the really good stuff that can come out of it. So, for example, you know, we're we're just wrapping up up a project at the moment with the Center for Disease Control in Shenzhen in China. Shenzhen has something like over 200 million people go through that city every year. So they have huge problems or can have huge problems with disease and flu and, and those sort of things. And so we've worked with the CDC there to build a flu prediction model that is now at about 90% accuracy that will help the policymakers there at the start of the flu season analyze not only the health data, which they already had, but you know, pull in the weather data, the topographical and geographical data of where the flu is in the city which populations are getting it, what is social media saying about flu, like mm. almost everything, crunch it and say, hey, we've got an 80% probability the flu is going to do this. We've got a 40% probability the flu is going to do this. And it you know, allows people to understand the world and see into the future and then make better choices as policymakers about what that could be. So I think there's a lot of good that can happen. You know, that said, I think we're also nervous about our data being collected, about assumptions being made about us that we might not know about, that we might want to challenge or that we just might not want to recognize in ourselves. And <laughs> People's Spotify and, list, for example, someone was saying. Yes, that's they, right. They've been pegged all wrong. I, I don't link my Spotify to my Facebook because <laughs> there's also some things I want private. Right. And if I want to listen to Tina Turner on a Saturday <laughs> morning, I want to do it by myself. 
<laughs> there are really serious issues there, obviously at the, the personal privacy level, yeah. but also you know, what it can mean to be making conscious predictions about people and groups of people in the future when you know, maybe they might be 80% right, but our society also likes to, and I think rightly looks at people as individuals as well, with their own possibilities and their own motivations. And that I think is not something that we've really grappled with at a, in a sensible way yet. And I don't know that we will. I think we might end up grappling with it like we did with surveillance cameras, sort of mm-hmm. when they happen and people go, hey, this has happened. Let's now have a conversation about it. And that's probably how we're going to do it. But if we could be on the front foot there, that would be great. I think you're right. Sometimes the technology just washes over us and then we, we kind of have to deal with it and work yep. it out. Yeah. So this is the Mission Control Podcast with Liana Downey and I'm here talking to David Raper from IBM about the role of big data in the changing world. And David, you were just giving us a really interesting example of, uh, about the work of the Centers for Disease Control in Shenzhen in China to track and use information as a way to have better predictive models about flu in particular, but other diseases. What are some of the other ways that big data can and is being used to, to drive social change, to tackle some of those really big, important societal questions? So I, I think there's a couple of ways. There's many, many ways, but perhaps I'll just talk about four that I see happening and of those four, one that I would love to see happening. I think the first is prediction, you know, being able to store so much information about the past that, that we as humans just can't have in our head at once and being able to crunch that and, and make it digestible so we as either policymakers in government, as business managers in, you know, business, as not-for-profit leaders can say, okay, I, I now have a tool that can help me understand more of what's going on and give me a guide as to what might happen in the future and I can make better judgments. And that, I think, is happening now. It's its early stages. I think there's huge possibility there. The second is in personalization. Because all of that data is out there, the data sets are so big that it's very easy to find someone like me or a situation like mine in the data set and so be able to say, okay, well, how would David want to have that response? Mm-hmm. Now, we, that's happening already in the world of advertising where our Spotify lists and our Facebook yep. thing are driving the ads we see. Sometimes perversely, I just bought a sofa. I'm not going to buy a sofa for another decade, right. probably, but I'm getting flattered with oh, stuff. So, <laughs> so it's all what you do with it. But, but, you know, in terms of accessing government services, accessing the call center and customer service with, with businesses, dealing with donors as a not-for-profit, you know, if you, really it's going to help us understand me as a person better and also how people like me typically behave and like to be treated and what we're going to respond to. Again, there could be a sinister side to that or a sinister view on that, but there can also be a really convenient and empowering view of that as well. So I think personalization. And you didn't list them, but presumably also for non-profit organizations with their clients about the kinds of services that might best support them or they might need if you're, you know, serving as you work young adults coping with disabilities of various types, you know, what seems to work for people with a certain profile so that you can preempt yep. at least and, and, and have a higher chance of success with your first. Exactly. So, so a thing we're going to be launching at, at IBM in January uh, is called Watson Teacher Advisor. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, applying some of this cognitive or, you know, big data analytics and predictive technology to support teachers in their classroom teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, teaching can be a very isolating experience because you're, you know, in the room with a bunch of 10-year-olds for your entire career. And so what we've done is, is work with a lot of teaching organizations to build a tool that a teacher will be able to say, okay, I teach, high, I teach primary school maths. Some of my students are struggling to get fractions. You know, maybe they're from a, you know, a different language background or, you know, here's some more information about my classroom environment. 
And Watson Teacher Advisor will take that information. We've taught it pedagogy and it will then draw on all of the pedagogical articles that it's read and say, okay, I think here are some strategies that you could do based on what the learning about teaching is and based on what you've told me about your, you know, these particular group of students. So I think in the social sphere, there's a lot of possibility. Very interesting. To do that. So prediction, personalization, jumping off that, I think skilling, I think we're going to have huge shortages of, you know, professionals, paraprofessionals, you know, in emerging markets like India, where I think there's one doctor per thousand people. So even if you had all the money in the world, for a generation, you're not, you're not going to have enough doctors for India. And I think some of this, the kind of like big data machine learning that I was just talking about in the context of teaching, mm-hmm. you know, you can apply to doctors, to engineers, to teachers, you know, and, and help a, a good teacher be or a good doctor be great, help a GP have specialist knowledge much faster than, you know, some of the traditional ways of upskilling people. And then, and then finally, the thing I'd like to see, and I don't know that it's happening yet, is... In community building, I think one of the things that big data reflects is our communities. And, you know, we started this podcast talking about sort of political environments where there can be antagonism and we kind of like reduce ourselves to two impersonal groups that fight against each other Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and can't talk to each other because it's set up as a us versus them. Right. And And I wonder what role there is for big data to say, okay, David, you're having a rant on Facebook now about something, which I try not to do. It's of no productive value to society to have somebody from the polar opposite of you to rant back. But here's a group of people that share some things with you, but are a little bit different. So we're going to give you those people's perspectives on your Facebook feed and, you know, try to build some commonality in that space and, and, you know, then take it the next step and the next step and the next step and and try to build zones of commonality based on what we understand about people and the networks and their views and to move the debate and our society's sense of oneness to a degree forward. I think Facebook was beginning to touch on that when they got into trouble a couple of years ago by trying to alter our, or experiment with our moods by altering what went into the feed. Yeah. And I was surprised that, that there was such a negative reaction to that because the feed is altering our moods, whether it's a thoughtful algorithm or not a thoughtful algorithm. Yeah. I would love to see us beginning to understand and then to see is there applications of this big data and personalization and understanding of us as people and groups to actually have better, more informed debates as a community actually start to take advantage of some of these great networking tools that we have, not to shrink our worldview and shrink the people that we are exposed to, but expand it in a way that's thoughtful and not so confronting that you reject it, but is close enough that you can go, okay, well, we disagree on 80% of things, but 20 we agree. So let's see if we can find some common ground in the next 10%. That's my wish list. That's a fascinating idea. Well, that's a wonderful note for us to end on. I love that kind of the idea and the idea of optimism and around how we can use social networks to join rather than to divide, which at the yep. moment we are seeing more of. So thank you so much, David, for joining us. And as always for our listeners, thank you for listening and for all you are all doing to change the world. If you're looking for more information about the work that David and his colleagues are doing, is there somewhere they can go, David? Sure. For IBM, that would be at ibm.com forward slash responsibility. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much. And if you're a leader looking for help in changing the world, you can join the Mission Control community at www.missioncontrolbook.com where you'll find blog, podcast posts, and a heap of other tools. This is Mission Control with Liana Downey, and I'll speak with you soon. Thanks so much for joining us, David. Thanks, Liana. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.